Turn to 1 John chapter 5. Um, I have lots of stuff up here. I have a stool. I have a chair. Um, I asked if we could bring, you know, the recliner from home. I thought that was a bad idea. Uh, so we'll see. I might sit. I might not. I don't know. Uh, but we're in 1 John, and uh, it's, been a, it's been good going through this book. I don't know if you've ever just kind of walked through 1 John. Uh, 1 John sounds very repetitive, and you kind of wonder if he ever has a point, or he just repeats himself a lot. Uh, but what I have found is we've been working through this book, that John has a very, has a very large point as he's working through, that he wants us to have assurance. He wants us to know that we are, uh, that not only uh, that we can know if we're saved, but the reasons that we can have assurance in our faith. And so he logically makes arguments throughout the book, and they're beginning to climax now as we're moving into chapter 5. And so uh, primarily... Uh, we're looking at the fact that as Christians, we can have assurance in our salvation. In fact, our main point today is as Christian, our new birth produces a radically new life that confirms our salvation. And so that's what I want us to see today. John is writing to a church that has had um, many people leave because of false Christ's. False Christs are people who deny Jesus Christ. So these people have come into the church. We read about that in chapter 2. You can kind of see their influence throughout the letter on the things that he's arguing for. And because of this mass exodus that has taken place in the church, we, we have a church that is left. It's smaller in number. And they're wondering, are we really saved? Do we really have the right information? Are we believing the right thing? And so in 1 John 5.13, John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That is the, the, the summary of the book. He wants us to know that we have eternal life. And so that is my goal today, is that we would know as a body, individually, if we have eternal life. And think about it. Do you ever, do you ever wonder that? Do you ever question that? Do I have eternal life? Do you ever struggle with assurance? Do you ever feel the weight of doubt pressing against your heart, against your mind? Or maybe if someone came to you today and said, look, how do I know that I'm a Christian? How would you answer them? How would you respond to them? Think of it. Think if you're a father and your child comes to you. How do you shepherd them in that moment? John gives us reasons that we can actually know that we have assurance in our salvation. As Christians, we're meant to have assurance. Now, I'm not saying we won't battle with assurance. So as we go through here, we're not going to say, because we ought to have assurance, we should never struggle with assurance. And if you do struggle, then you're not truly saved. No, many of us will struggle, and for varying reasons, to different degrees with that throughout our entire life. But when we do struggle... When we do feel that fight beginning to wage war in our mind, in our soul, in our very heart, John gives us reasons in the inspired word that we can come and combat the lies of Satan, the lies of our sin with the truth of God's word. And so that's what I want us to do today. We're going to look at what does God's word say so that we know we have eternal life or we might know today that we don't have eternal life. Or we know how to respond to someone if they come and say, how do I know? 
and if they're struggling in their assurance of salvation. So there's three questions, and, and, and by the end of this, we should be able to answer these three questions. Number one, why is it we ought to have assurance? I want us to be able to answer that today because of the text. What are some of the evidences of our salvation? And why is it that there is only salvation in Jesus Christ? That last, that last question we may or may not get to. Our goal is to get through all 12 verses. We'll see how far we get today. Um, but I'll go ahead and invite you to stand. Uh, we stand here at the reading of God's Word. Um, we stand because God's Word is inspired. It comes with the full authority of God. And we believe it is used by God not only to bring about salvation, but to sustain us in our faith that we would be equipped in every good work. And so 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, and we'll go to verse 12. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father, and everyone who loves the, who, who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God has, given, that God has gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that by your grace that you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, into the world that we could have life. Father, as we... As we open your word, as we dig into your word, give us wisdom today to understand your word. Open our eyes to see the truths of your word. Help us to see and understand what the life of a Christian is to look like. Help us to understand what you have freed us from and the life that we now have in you. Help us to see that because you have made us alive by your grace, we can have assurance. And Father, I pray that if there are those here who are unsure about their faith today, help them. May your Spirit come upon them. Lead them in truth. And if they've not trusted in your Son, may they do that today. Give them faith today. May your grace shine upon them that they would experience the gift of eternal life this morning because of your grace and your word. God, I pray that we as a church, that we would reveal our faith in how we live each and every day. Be with us this morning. And God, thank you that we have confidence that you will answer this prayer. In your name, Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Uh, we're going to start out with kind of the foundation. 
Why is it we ought to have assurance? And then from there, we're going to move into evidences of our faith. And so, uh, kind of made, I think there's, I think there's five points. Um, number one, there's new birth. We have been born again to live a radically new life. That's what I want us to see. First thing we must see is that John wants us to know the Christian life is fundamentally a new life. So three times in the first five verses here, uh, we read that uh, Christians have been born of God. In chapter 5, verse 1, in the first part, everyone who believes that Jesus Christ, uh, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God. The second part of chapter, of verse 1, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him, other Christians. Verse 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So in our passage, he's wanting us to see foundationally to the Christian life, we are new creations. But that's not something he waits five chapters to begin introducing. Chapter 4, verse 7, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Chapter 3, verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Chapter 2, verse 29, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So throughout the whole book, foundational to why we love one another, why we believe in Jesus Christ, why we live the very life that we do, there is a new birth. In fact, talking about this new birth is not just um, in the letters of John, But actually, in the Gospel of John, he writes about it also. And in fact, if you remember, in John chapter 3, Jesus meets with a man named Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. And Jesus begins talking to Nicodemus about how he can see and enter the kingdom of God. How how he can experience salvation. And he says, you will not see, you will not enter the kingdom of God except by being born again. So foundational to entering, foundational to seeing the very glory of God is this birth that we have in Jesus Christ. The Christian life is only possible because of the very grace of God that He makes us alive. Having faith in Jesus, loving others, loving God is all the result of this new birth. If you remember in John chapter 1, the Gospel, not the letter, John writes, We were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The reason you are saved, the reason you believe in Jesus Christ, is not because of your mind, because of your willpower, because of any disposition that you have. It is solely by the very grace of God that He awakens our heart, that we would see His very glory. And that which used not to be desirable has now become desirable. That which we used to rebel against, we now love and we affirm. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, we read, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now think about that. Birth precedes belief. You see it? The reason you believe in Jesus is because you have experienced this new birth. Uh, maybe an illustration will help. Uh, John chapter 11 Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He comes to the tomb. Lazarus is dead. He's been dead for, I think, four days. Um, And so he now is going to call for Lazarus to come out of the grave. Now just think about that. There's a cemetery down the street. We could all take turns. We could go stand by, you know, whatever plot we want. Whatever one feels lucky. And we could call for the people who are dead 
to rise out. Now, that would be creepy. So that might be one reason we don't do that. The other reason is, what good does that do? Dead people can't hear. Dead people can't respond. Talking to dead people does no good. Right? Unless if your words actually give life. And so Jesus stands outside the tomb of Lazarus, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And what do we see? Lazarus comes out. The very words of, Je- of Christ bring life to the dead corpse of Lazarus, that he would be filled with strength and with life, and that he would come out. That is what happens with the gospel, when upon hearing the word of God, God brings new life to us, that then we would be able to respond to him in faith. This is the new birth that we have in Christ. And this, this life is not like when you use jumper cables to start a dead battery in a car. You ever have that problem? You got a car, you got a dead battery, and you, know, you jump it. What happens? You still have the same car, Right? Still there, the battery's probably going to drain again eventually. But the new birth is that this vehicle becomes transformed into an entirely new vehicle that runs perfect and that has a power source that will never run out. It is a complete and absolute transformation. That is what John is wanting us to see in this text and all throughout the text is that the reason we have assurance, the reason we know that we can have assurance in Christ is because we have been born again. We have been made alive. Now real quick, why do we need to be born again? Why do we need to be made alive? So I want to give three texts and three reasons. Um, and I think, I think these made it up here. Uh, number one, We are born spiritually dead and thus need new life. So all throughout God's word, it is clear that you and I, because of Adam and Eve who have sinned in the garden, now everyone who comes from them, we are sinful. We're born spiritually dead in our sins. This is what Ephesians 2 says. Verses 1-5. through And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So that's the description of humanity. It's not very pleasing and honoring. That's who we are apart from God's grace. He says we're we're dead in our trespasses, and we follow the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. And we'll talk about that more. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So when were we made alive? When we were dead. That is when God's grace comes upon us, that we experience the regeneration of our soul, that we experience new life. Number two, Amen, indeed. Number two, we were born in darkness of sin, and the new birth brings us into the light of God's glory. There's many texts we could use here. Colossians 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So we have the realm of darkness, which we're born into, and then we're brought into the very kingdom of light. In fact, if you remember 1 John 1, 5, what do we, what do we learn about God? God is Remember, God is light. 
So God saves us from darkness and brings us into light. Number three, we're born into the family of Satan, but by the new birth, we're adopted into God's family. Now that might sound very strange to you. It does sound strange. If you're an unbeliever, you're not in some neutral category, you're not in some just waiting to be adopted, some foster home. It says you do belong to a family, and you're a part of the family of Satan. And only through the birth of Christ do we come into the family of God. We read this, 1 John chapter 3.10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Out of this new birth, we're brought from one family, a family that is condemned and to be judged, and brought into a new family, the family of God, that we'd be adopted into his family and that we would share in the very glory of God of God. We need to be born again because we come into this world, we're sinful, and thus we do not love God. The Bible says we're enemies. The Bible says we rebel against God's rule. And therefore, if we're going to trust in Jesus, if we're going to be adopted into his family, then we must experience a new birth, a new life. That is what John's talking about. That's what he wants us to see. We have been fundamentally made new. And so why does God make us alive? Why, by God's grace, does he give us new life? So that we would share in his glory and we'd be satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus for all of eternity. Do you know that? He saves us for our joy in his glory. He saves us that we would experience him, that we would know him, that we would rest in his peace forever. 1 John chapter 3, 2, we preached on this several weeks ago. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has, yet not, has not yet appeared. Jesus has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall be made exactly like Christ. Not in the sense that we're God, but that we'll be made perfectly holy, sharing in his very glory. He says, because we will see him as he is. Hear this. God has saved you so you'd be made like him, that you would enjoy his goodness and his glory for all of eternity. If we're to understand the, the Christian life, we must understand it is a radical, new, and different life than we have ever lived. And it's because of this new birth that comes to us by the grace of God that we can have assurance. And that's what we're going to look at. Now, as we look at these evidences that come from this new birth, John is not giving us rungs on a ladder that we must climb. And if we climb them, we're acceptable to God that we can have this new birth. And we're talking about consequences, um, not merit. Does that make sense? We're talking about what God has done in us. And because of this new birth, these things will come out of us. This is the fruit of the Christian life, not the merits to earn a Christian life. So number one, first evidence, our new birth results in faith in Jesus. And just so you know, it feels very weird. I feel very locked in to right here. <laughs> I don't ever move a whole lot, but normally I move a little bit to the side. I'm just kind of bring you into my world for a second. I'm very, like, locked in. I have no idea. I can't even move. Um, faith. Our new birth results in faith in Jesus. It's the first thing we see. Chapter 5, verse 1. What is the first result that John gives us of being born again? What is the result? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. So we believe this. Why? Because we have been born of God. So being born of God, thus we believe in Jesus Christ. Birth 
results in belief. Why is it my belief in Jesus is a means of assurance? Because the only reason we believe that Jesus is the true Son of God and that we love Jesus, that we see Him as desirable and that we want Him and we long for the day that He will return, that we'll be made like Him, is because we have been now saved by God's grace. We have been made alive. That which, used, that which we used to hate, which we used to reject, which we used to be disgusted at, which we thought was illogical, is now beautiful, is now glorious, is now makes perfect sense within the wisdom of God. Think of the Apostle Paul. Paul is, before he is saved, he is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He is zealous for Judaism. He hates Jesus Christ. He hates all who follow Jesus Christ. He arrests Christians, persecutes Christians, and kills Christians. And what we read in Acts chapter 9 is that he's on the way to Damascus where he's going to arrest Christians, kill Christians, persecute the church. And Jesus literally knocks him off the horse. There's this vision. Jesus shines his light of glory upon him, knocks him off his horse. And at that moment, what we begin to see is that Paul has been made new. He goes from persecuting the church to planting churches. He goes from one who hates Jesus Christ to writing 13 books about the very birth of Jesus Christ, about the life of Jesus Christ, about the value of Jesus Christ, about the glory of Jesus Christ. He writes things like in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So how is it that a man who hates Jesus now loves him? It's because of this new birth that now what he hated, he now loves And thus now he believes in Jesus. So if you're here today, if you want to know if you're born again, do you believe in Jesus? Do you trust that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came and died on a cross and rose three days later that you would have eternal life? Do you know that it is only in Jesus that there is forgiveness of sins? If you answer yes, you have assurance. Why? Because only by the Spirit of God working in you can you testify that. That's what we learned a couple weeks ago when Chris Gorman preached 1 John chapter 4. False spirits will always move us away from Jesus Christ as the true Son of God. Only the true Spirit of God working in us works in us that we affirm Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so one of the reasons we can say that if you believe in Jesus Christ, that is evidence of your salvation, is because it is only by the work of God in you that we actually do believe in Jesus Christ. But our faith is not the only assurance John gives us. We've looked and he's talked about faith throughout the book, but the other one that has dominated this letter is our love. Our new birth results in loving God and loving others. All throughout the letter, John has described the Christian life and he describes it as one of love. According to 5.1, look at what 5.1 says. Everyone who loves the Father loves God. Whoever has been born of him. Who's that? Who has been born of God? The. This is interactive time. I know. I haven't been here the last couple weeks. I'm sorry. This is interactive. So I, I, I ask the question and you interact, respond. So who are those born of God? It's the, it's the church, right? It's the church. It's us. It's the universal church. We love those who are born of God. We love the church. The evidence of our love for God is we love the church. Now, why? Why is that evidence? 
Why? What, what logical reason is there for that? Well, think about it. Because of our new birth, we've been brought from darkness to light, from darkness to light, from death to light, from the family of the devil to what? The family of God. So who is the church? The church is our? Come on. Family, right? Church is family. We love one another. We become brothers and sisters in Christ. God is our father. Jesus is our elder brother. And now we are family. So why do we love one another? Because we're family. And we're held closer together than the DNA that holds you together with your children. We're held together by the very blood of Christ. This is why we're getting ready to launch our table groups coming up. Why are table groups important? Just so you know, that that's our form of small groups. We just kind of notice that whenever we have real conversations with people, there tends to be a table involved. We're not obsessed with tables. You don't have to have a table at your table group. We do recommend them. Um, but we call them table groups. And, and the reason we encourage you to be part of these is because it's part of who we are. It's part of living out who we are in Jesus Christ. We're family, and so we look for ways Table groups are simply a vehicle to help us be together, spend time with one another, study God's Word, and serve and love one another. When we have people who are sick and hurting, what do we do? We provide meals for one another. In fact, you guys have done this for us in incredible ways. I know Donna has had knee surgery uh, earlier this week, and you have brought meals for her. And so why do we do that? It is an expression of our love for one another. If we don't see you here in a couple weeks, just so you know, we kind of do an attendance thing every week. You might not know it, but that's one thing Rue does. She kind of tracks who's here so we know who's not here. And guess what happens? If you're not here, we, we call you. We send you letters. I've gotten letters. Um, man, I leave to go to Colorado for a week, and then I wasn't here last week. I got a letter saying, man, we're, we're kind of worried about you. Uh, but why do we send letters? Because we love one another. We're concerned. If your child didn't come home, would you be concerned? Probably. We're, we love one another. We look to how do we express that love. There's many more things that we could say. Now in chapter 5, verse 2, John says, the evidence that we love the church, the children of God, is that we love God and we obey His commandments. And so the way we know God, the way we know we love God is that we love the church. The way we know we love the church is that we love God. Do you, do you see what's central to the Christian life? It's that we love one another. In fact, then he says, and that we obey his commandments. Well, what are the commandments that we have been given? Well, throughout the letter, we have seen uh, two commandments that he gives. Um, and it's that we would believe in Jesus Christ and that we would love one another. So the very command of God is to believe in Christ and to love one another. The entire Christian life is one of love for God and for one another. Now why? Why is it so important? Why can we press on this and say, if you don't love the church, you cannot be a believer? Why can we push so hard on that? Why when someone says, look, I love the church, I love God, I just don't do church. Why can we press on that and say, that can't be true? It's not because we're just making things up, but last week Chris preaches that God is love. 1 John 4, 8. 
And so anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so we, we're to know God and we're to love because God is love. Now, what's the connection between God being love and me now loving? Like there has to be a connection. It doesn't make sense to say God's loving and therefore you have to love. What's the connection? Well, if we go back just a little bit earlier to 1 John 3, 9, go ahead and turn there, just a page or two to the left. We see God is love. Let me read 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Okay, so if you remember, I preached that text, and we we zeroed in on, on the central part of that. For God's seed abides in him. So who lives in you? And we've done this thing. All right, it's interactive. Who lives in you? God lives in us. The Spirit of Christ works in us. Who is God? God is love. Why do we love? Because the very God who is love now dwells within us that we love one another. And so if we say, I don't love the church, I don't want to be with the church, how can that make sense if the God of love dwells within us that we would love his body, his bride, the very church that he died to save? It doesn't make sense. And so that's why we can press on that. And when people aren't in the church or with the church or they say, you know what, I don't want to gather with you anymore, we don't just say, oh, that's okay. That's a preferential thing. No, we prioritize the gathering with the church. We prioritize the the, the coming together with table groups. We prioritize the getting in accountability groups or meeting with one another one-on-one, having relationships with one another, not just because we say, you know, this is going to help you in your Christian life because it is the Christian life. You see it? God is love. His seed dwells within us. And we all know, like, like, you know, like father, like son, that the son follows like the father. If you look at pictures of Ben right now, like we're identical. Even my mom was like saying, my mom's here, just so you know. You can wave, mom. My mom's here. My dad's here. If you want to wave too, you can wave. Um, my mom was saying just yesterday, man, Ben looks exactly like I did at his age. Why? Well, there's a connection there. And now, if that happens in a human way, how much more when God's seed abides in us that we begin to be transformed into the very image of who God is. We love because God now lives in us. This is why John says in 1 John 4, 21, whoever loves God must love his brother. Referring to the family of God. And if God who is love lives in us, how can we not love God and love the church? So in verse 2, we read about the commands. We see that God's command centers on loving God, loving others, and having faith in Jesus. This is what the entire Christian life is about. So let me just ask you, how are you loving the church? How do you love the church? How are you putting the needs of the church How are you meeting the needs of the church? How are you putting the needs of the church before your own needs? 1 John 3, 18. We're to love not in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So hopefully we we use words lovingly, but the point is our words should not be the only thing loving about us. But if God's seed abides in us, not only will we use words in a loving way, but our actions will be in a loving way. 
We will love one another, not just because God's seed abides in me. I'll take this meal. Fine, I'll make this pot roast or whatever it is. I'll give them this food. I'll serve these people. I'll come be an usher. I'll come help these people on Thursday and give them backpacks. Fine. You ever feel like that? (laughs) That's not how it's supposed to be. We're not to be acting begrudgingly. Not always that it's easy. But it's not to be begrudging. Now, John has given us a model for what love is to look like in his book. Do you realize we don't have to figure out how is it that I'm actually supposed to love you? Like, I don't have to figure that out. John actually tells us what love looks like. And he did that in 1 John 4, 9, and 10. So if you have your Bible, go back to 1 John 4, 9, and 10. We don't have to read romance novels, thank goodness. We don't have to watch soap operas, praise God. We don't have to watch silly, romantic, little comedy flicks, although some are fun in order to figure out what love is. If you want to know what love is, if you want to know how God loves us and how we're to love one another, we come into the Word, which shows us how God is loving. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God has revealed his love by sending his son Jesus to die for us when we did not love him. So so get that. It's not when we're going, God, we love you. And you're amazing. We want to be with you. Find a way. No, it's, it's we don't love God. We're his enemies. We rebel against him. We're a part of the family of Satan. We deserve judgment and wrath, which is why Jesus comes as the propitiation Big word, we talk about that a lot. He absorbs God's wrath for us. That's what that word means, wrath absorber. He absorbs God's wrath so that we could then have peace with God, be adopted into his family, and love one another. And so, this is how God has shown. This is love. And so, if we as a church, if we're to love, it means we're going to willingly love others for their good when it is costly and sacrificial. You hear that? We willingly love others for their good when it's costly and sacrificial. That, that's what it is to love one another. It's not just loving each other when it's convenient, although love when that happens, right? Like that's not a bad thing. But if I only love you when it's convenient for me, I won't love you a lot. And I won't love you really for your good. But it's when I willingly serve you, even at times of great sacrifice for myself or cost, for your good. That's a picture of the gospel. And when we love each other that way, what do we do? We remind ourselves of the gospel. We remind ourselves of God's love. And what do we do for unbelievers? We're showing them the very love of God. This is why unbelievers ought to say, why do you live that way? Why do you love that way? They're not going to ask that question if we simply love like the world loves when it's convenient and when it's not costly and not sacrificial, but when we willingly love others for their good, when it's costly and sacrificial, that's when the church, that's when the world will say, look, we don't understand that. That is how God has defined his love for us. 
And because his seed abides in us, that is how his spirit is now leading us to love one another. So can we do that? I mean, that sounds hard, right? It does to me. I think it's hard. Like, really, I have to love others willingly? That's hard. Costly and sacrificial? That's hard. For their good? Eh, can it be for my good? This is why John ends verse 3 with saying, and his commandments are not burdensome. Okay. They're not burdensome. Now John Stott in his commentary says, God's commands are no more burdensome than the wings of a bird. A bird has wings and thus it flies. We've been saved by God, been made alive in the family of God. His seed dwells in us, thus we love. Does this mean obedience is easy? No, even a bird who has wings has to learn how to fly. What happens the first dozen or so times the bird tries to fly? He doesn't go up, right? He has to learn how to fly, and thus we have to learn how to love. But because we have been made alive by the Spirit, and the Spirit does strengthen us and encourage us and move us and incline our hearts to love one another, we will continue to love. And in verse 4, John is going to tell us why loving others is not burdensome. So here's the other evidence for our salvation. Number one, faith in God. Number two, love for others. Number three, conqueror. Our new birth results in victory. Look at verses 4 and 5. The word overcome is used three times. It means to have victory, to conquer. One theologian, MacArthur, writes in his commentary, the Greeks only thought victory was possible with the gods. They even had a goddess named Nike, the goddess of victory, who aided Zeus in his battle against the Titans. Of course, that's where we get Nike. And on those shields that they carried was a swoosh. No, no, it really wasn't. That's a lie. That's a lie. I just made that up. Um, But here, John says, because of our new birth, We have become overcomers. We have been victorious over the world. So what does that mean? What does it mean we're victorious over the world? And how is it this victory over the world now means that the the commands of God are no longer burdensome? Let me just give two texts. 1 John 5.19. We read the whole world is under the power of the evil one. 1 John 5.19. The whole world is under the power of the evil one. Now, earlier... I think it was the second sermon that was preached, 1 John 2.15. We read that the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, all these things that are in the world are against God. They're not of God. And so we're born in a world that is under the rule of Satan, and we're controlled by the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. But now God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, saves us, that we're no longer under the rule of Satan. Remember, Jesus comes as our propitious offering. He's absorbed God's wrath, so no longer are we enemies of God, but we're at peace with God. We've been set free, that we can now live the new life that God has called us. No longer do we, are we enslaved to the desires of our flesh, but His Spirit is in us, that now we would overcome the desires of the flesh, Galatians chapter 5, and that we would produce the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So another means of your salvation is that you know you are victorious over the world. So do you know that there is no condemnation against you because of Jesus Christ? Do you know that? Amen. 
Do you know that you are free to live as God has called you? Do you know that you're victorious over sin? How do you know this? Verse 5, look at the end. Have you believed in Jesus, the Son of God? See, with with this new birth, it's kind of simultaneous. It's hard to distinguish. There's this regeneration that takes place, and very quickly to this regeneration is there's this faith in Christ. Once our, our soul has been made new, once we've been given this new heart and new spirit, we see the very beauty of God. We desire Him, thus we have faith in Him, thus we begin to love others, and thus, at that moment, we are victorious over sin. Now, at this moment, I just want to pause. I imagine there are some of you here right now, and you're thinking, assurance, I don't feel assured of my salvation anymore. In fact, you might have felt assured coming in, and now you don't. Um, what do we do with that? Um, you might feel like I don't. You might be thinking, I don't always love others. I don't always love God. I don't, I don't feel victorious. In fact, I feel as though I'm constantly in a battle against sin. Do you ever feel like that? Now, if what you mean by the fact that I don't always love others, I I don't always love God, and I don't feel victorious, if if what you mean by that is I don't want to put the needs of others in front of me, especially the church, I don't have victory over sin, I, I never win a battle against sin, then you might not have assurance because you're not saved. But if what you mean is I want to love others, but I so often struggle in doing so. I fight with sin, and sometimes I overcome it. I mean, there's sometimes I feel defeated by it. If that is what you mean, then what that sounds like is much more like the Christian life that we have according to God's Word. Remember, this victory does not mean easy. It doesn't mean that there's no battle. Christian life is not one of perfection. We'll look at that more next week. But even 1 John 2, 1, he says, when we do sin, we have assurance because Jesus, Jesus is there for us as our propitiation. It is, our life is one in which we have been given a new heart, which is now inclined to love others, to serve others. It is inclined to fight sin. It doesn't mean there's not a battle. It doesn't mean we won't wage war at times within our hearts. But if there is no war, all you do is go against the very truth that we have here in Scripture, then there is no reason to find assurance in salvation. But when you do know you're in the battle, it's not that you're victorious all the time, but it's that you're in the fight. It's that you are striving, and others are coming along with you. There's one way that we can know we have salvation. We could spend much more time there. Um, But what I want to do is we're going to quickly kind of go through verses 6 through 12. The main bulk was in 1 through 5. Um, wanted us to really see the, the foundation for why we have assurance, the evidences for salvation. And now what's going to come here in verses 6 through 12, God is going to confirm that this new life only comes through Jesus. And so we're going to move through this one pretty quick. All throughout this letter, the false teachers have been trying to get around Jesus. Uh, chapter 1, they said, we don't need forgiveness of sins. 
Chapter 2, they straight up deny Jesus, and thus they deny the Father. In chapter 4, we see that all false spirits will always lead people away from trusting in the true Jesus, the Son of God. The message of the world is that you are good enough, you don't need Jesus. In fact, it's because the world rejects Jesus, it has come up with so many alternative belief systems. And probably if you were to take a little inventory in your mind, you could probably come up with 10, 20 different belief systems. Here in the Northwest, a dominant system is atheism. Atheism says there's no proof for God. This life, what you see and feel, is all that there is. Atheism denies that there's an objective reality outside of us. Bertrand Russell, a famous atheist, said that if there was a God, and if he was to meet that God one day, his number one question would be, why did you not give us better evidence? Now, we could spend many sermons on, very, on a lot of different texts on how God gives evidence. But what we would see is the problem is not about evidence. The problem is about a sinful heart, which John addresses in the first section there. We need this new birth. But John wants us to know that God has given testimony that Jesus Christ is the only one in which eternal life is to be found. And we see that here in verses 6 through 13, the word testify in the noun and the verb, it appears nine times. It's kind of like we've entered into a courtroom and God is testifying. He's making the case. Jesus is the Son of God. Only in Him is there eternal life. And so God's going to give three ways that He's testified of this. Not one, not two. We're told in the Old Testament you need three witnesses to bring about a claim. And so God has done that. And in verse 10, we read, I'm sorry, in verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. So if we would believe three, or man's testimony, he gives three evidences, how much more ought we to believe God, the God of light, the God of truth, when he gives his evidences? And so he gives three, water, blood, spirit. Now, there's some debate on what water and blood mean. We don't have time to go over those. But I believe the most obvious and the most um, popular understanding is probably the one that, that, that is correct. Water refers to the very baptism of Jesus, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, dove comes down to descend upon him. Jesus, or God, the Father, then speaks, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus at the very birth of his ministry, is testified by God. The full trinity is pictured here as the Son of God. The blood refers to Jesus' death on the cross. And so we have the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the end of Jesus' ministry, and it's at the cross Jesus accomplishes the mission of God. That he dies on the cross, fulfilling all Old Testament prophecies that we can be forgiven and brought into the very presence of God. The Spirit is the one who empowers Jesus throughout his entire earthly ministry. Matthew 4.1, we read right after Jesus' baptism, he's about to go into the wilderness, and he's empowered by the Spirit. All of the miracles, all of the acts, everything Jesus does and says is empowered by the Spirit. And so God says, it's by these three. I testify. No one else has come to be baptized who is perfect, who has been um, declared to be my beloved son. No one else has lived the way that Jesus has, perfect, fulfilling all Old Testament prophecies. No one else has been able to die on a cross and be a propitious offering 
for the sins of the world except Jesus. So it's through these three ways God says, this is my Son. In Him you have eternal life. So that's the main point. He wants us to see that this life, this new birth, these evidences only come through faith in Jesus. These false teachers that operated 2,000 years ago, just like we have today, many people saying, you know what, you don't need to believe in Jesus. You can believe in this, you can believe in this. And they come up with all their alternative systems. Or they'll say, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but they define him differently than the way the Bible does. Only Jesus Christ possesses eternal life. And it's how we respond to Christ which reveals whether we have life or we remain in death. And so there's a warning and encouragement. We'll start with the encouragement. Verses 10 through 12. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. What's the testimony? It's eternal life. That's what he tells us. Verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. So if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have life. What life? Eternal life. The life that has made you new, given you new life, new heart, new soul, that you would live the way God has called you. Hinges on Jesus Christ. The warning, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. So hear this. There's no neutrality. Remember, you're not in foster care. Will I go to God the Father and His family? Will I go to Satan and His family? No, you're in Satan's family and only by God's grace, which you know you've experienced if you believe in the Son. If you don't believe in the Son, it says you call God a liar. Your testimony is not true, God. The water, the blood, and the Spirit, I do not agree with. I deny. And thus you make yourself God. And you get to decide who has eternal life or how eternal life comes about or what happens after this life. And so in verse 12, very clearly, John says, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So why does it have to be in Jesus Christ? Because the water, the blood, and the Spirit all testify Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, the one who has come, the only one worthy to die, be the propitious, wrath-absorbing sacrifice, that we who believe in him would be at peace with God, adopted into his family, made like Christ, know that when Christ appears, we'll be made perfectly like him, and thus we begin to live like him now. And hear this, if you reject Jesus, there is no life that awaits you but it is an eternal death, a dying that never ceases. Hear this. Right now, everyone you know that does not believe in Jesus Christ is on a one-way ticket to hell. It's the truth of God's Word. That, that's why he's saying this. In Jesus you have life. Apart from Jesus, there is no life. So if you're here today, if you say, well, I don't agree with that. Well, know what you're not agreeing with. You're rejecting the blood, the water, the spirit. You're denying the testimony of God. You're calling him a liar according to God's word. And it says you do not have life. It is only through Jesus that you have life. If you have friends, co-workers, family members, whoever you know, if they don't believe in the gospel, they don't have life. And it is only death judgment that awaits them. 
We must know this. We have been saved by grace, not because we've done anything, but simply by God's grace, that we would then go freely and share the good news of the gospel with others, that others would also experience the very grace of God. As a church, one way we love one another is by loving each other, showing the gospel, loving each other in sacrificial ways. But our love doesn't stop there. Our love goes beyond these walls. Our love goes beyond our homes. Our love goes beyond our relationships. That we love unbelievers. Not because they're worthy, but because of the good news of the gospel is the only thing that gives life. So, let us share the gospel. And let us do so boldly knowing that when the gospel goes forth, God's word gives life. So to answer three questions, why is it we ought to have assurance? Because God has given us new life that we live a radically new life. Did I say that right? Because God has given us new life that we live a radically new life. That sounded different in my head. We have assurance because of the new birth. It's out of this new birth everything else comes from. What are some of the evidences of our salvation? That you love God, you have faith in Jesus, you have victory over sin. Listen, apple trees produce apples. Cherry trees produce cherries. Christians produce the very fruit of the Spirit. We love God, we love others, we have faith in Jesus, we have victory over sin. Why is it that there is salvation only in Christ? Because it is in Christ that God has testified that there is no other one which eternal life is found in. It is only found in Jesus. The water, the blood, the Spirit all testify to that. So as we close, know this: it's because of God's grace, if you trust in Jesus, that you've experienced this new life, that we'd live radically different. I, I would say make these evidences prayers in your life regularly. God, help me to continue to believe. Help me to continue to trust. Help me to love the church. Help me to engage in the church. Evaluate how you are engaging and interacting with the church. Let that be a prayer. God, help me to be more involved. Help me to willingly serve others for their good when it's costly and sacrificial. Help me to desire to do that. Let's make these our prayers. God, give me victory over sin. There is no sin that you are plagued with that you do not have victory with over in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean the battle's easy. It doesn't mean the battle goes away right away. We can talk about that more later. But it does mean you're no longer a slave to sin. I want to encourage you, we have a spot in your bulletin to write two things. I encourage you just, just write as we move into prayer, into communion. What is it that God's leading you today? Maybe it's sharing the gospel with someone. Maybe it's different ways to pray. Maybe there's conviction on how you've been living. Maybe there's conviction in saying, you're not truly saved. I encourage you. We know that when God's word goes out, his spirit goes out. So write as the spirit leads you. And I pray, go th follow through with whatever actions he's leading you to do. I'm going to pray. Uh, and then Chris is going to come forward, and he's going to lead us in communion. And so I'll go ahead and ask the men to be ready to go ahead and come forward uh, as we're praying. Father, Father, we praise you that you save. You save us not because we're worthy. You save us not because of any merit that we have done. You save us not because we long for you and we want you, not because we're made any different, but simply because of your grace. And God, may we see that your grace is not cheap, but it is costly, it is transformative, it changes us into the very nature of your Son, Jesus Christ, that through the power of your Spirit, we would live as you have called us, we would love one another, 
we would fight against sin and experience a victory over sin. God, I pray for us as a church that we would experience these truths, that we would know these truths. And when doubt comes, and it will, that we would fight against it with the truth of your word. Father, Father, fill us today with your spirit. I pray that if there's anyone here who does not know you, bring conviction today. May they know that your son Jesus Christ alone possesses eternal life. May they trust in you today. And for us who do know you, strengthen us. Encourage us. Continue to work in us that we would live the way you have called us to. In your name, Jesus, amen.